I read it along with you guys. I hadn't read it before. I'd read an excerpt in um, a philosophy magazine and was interested and thought I should read that someday. And I liked that it was short for us to be able to kind of get through quickly during the holiday season. So I'll just give a brief synopsis. The Machine Stops by E.M. Forrester was written in 1909. It starts out with a woman in a womb-like room. And the setting is somewhere in the very far future. It's a bit of a, you know, we don't know how far into the future. And it seems that everyone is living in sort of these like pods, these single rooms isolated from each other, really for the most part. And they can connect with people via blue plates and they push button to get healthcare, food, baths, clothing. So, so they live in they live in the future, and um, they you know they are everyone is controlled or not controlled, but life goes on via the machine. And the character Vashti gets a call from her son Kuno, and he would like her to come and visit, and she doesn't want to go, and she doesn't like to leave her little pod. And but she ends up going. She visits him when she arrives there via these airships. He tells her that he has made a an unauthorized trip to Earth's surface because they live in these little rooms below the earth's surface and she knows that this means for her he will be homeless in in this world homelessness means death because the idea is that you that the air outside of on the earth's surface is is not uh, suitable for humans and i'm just going to give a loose skeleton because we can like you said really flesh that out as we go along um she goes back to her pod and kunis sends a sort of a cryptic message that says the machine stops and over time, things begin to break down with the machine until the end when everything seems to fail and they have to exit their their pods, their little rooms and go to their surface. And, you know, it's sort of like the apocalypse. So yeah. nobody really knows how the machine works, which is interesting. You know, the yeah. people who really made it, they knew and then they tried to pass along that information. But, you know, that information kind of just didn't really travel through so that no one knows the entirety of the machine. People know bits and pieces of how it works. And that ultimately they become so dependent on this machine that that seems to be their undoing. Kind of frightening. Absolutely. And yeah. Christian. Yeah. It's such a neat story and that it's unlike what we usually read. It's uh, maybe not a parable, but it ra- like has a lesson at the end. Where yeah. it's got like an entire teleology of where this thing goes and wraps up. You know, it's an end of the earth story, like kind of like the last question. Rather, that one kept jumping forward in the future. This kind of got to the the apogee or whatever. I mean, there's so many funny things about it that I think are worth talking about too. Which I sure. mean, the first part, it's it's anybody from San Francisco who doesn't like to go to an airport, you know, like or it's just people like on their iPads, uh, not wanting, you know, like just the the churn of public transportation reminded me of people not wanting to leave their like office pods, you know, to yeah. go across the country for two hours and visit, you know, some meat sack, you know, in person. Yeah, it, it reminded me of, you know, the sort of stereotypical thing you hear about the person who is some kind of a coder or some kind of technological genius who has everything delivered to their house, all their food, and they just sort of live on their computer all day long. And they never have any real contact with the outside world. And they do all these things online, but then they go out and they're socially inept. You know, they haven't really had those kinds of in-person interactions and they've forgotten how to interact in any other way besides, you know, via the text or computer. And it, it seemed also kind of 
symbolic of the way in which we put ourselves into these sort of ideological silos by way of the internet. And so we don't brush up against people of different cultures, of different beliefs. And in this world, they seem to have all sort of morphed into one belief. You know, they all kind of have this sort of assimilated in their thinking. And, and in, in a lot of ways, I think we, we do that within our own cultural spheres. Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, like they're, they might have, she's a lecturer and everyone else is a lecturer. And apparently they're all talking about the great mash of culture, but they're, so they have a lot of ideas. And that's, I think, important a word because she talks about it a lot. Like yeah, the ideas. in the landscape, yeah, the there's ideas. no ideas here and stuff. So let's just underline that. I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, but just to make the point here that, you know, with her being able to have these different jobs and her whole life is about not uh, coming up with ideas. But anyway, basically what I was trying to get at is that they are underpinned this status quo of technology and the internet, right? Like, so everybody is like radically different ideologies, but everybody likes to go to the faucet and everybody, and this is a, a it's more than a utility because it actually is the new physiology for how things are conducted to your individual organism. You know, so it's such a runaway example of, you know, the funny thing the funny turn here is, is that we can imagine this in our time, which is in the time of this fictional future, where we they say that one of the big moves that we made was going out to places and then having things come in. Yeah. And they're at a height of incoming. And so having, you know, uh, a drone drop off your pizza is the kind of the beginning of, you know, this super highway to, to your person. And so everybody is dependent on that. And but it's happening. It, yeah. It's happening. Now, I mean, Amazon Certainly. is planning to do that with drones. They're doing drones. I mean, I, I, you know, you're talking about this sort of horrific fall into this hole that seems to be happening now in reality in our lives. That's not lost on me. I mean, it's, yeah, it's no. incredible. It's kind of scary. One thing that was interesting is there's a quote in there that says, man seldom moved their bodies. All unrest was concentrated in the soul. That almost sounds like a good thing as I read it. And I thought, you know, I don't know exactly what he meant when he said that. But it made me think as a parent, you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of playing outside and roaming about the neighborhoods and just a lot more physical freedom. And as time has gone on, you know, we travel to and from these sort of dance classes and all those kinds of things, physical activities. But, you know, obesity is becoming a problem because people are so much more sedentary. And it feels so kind of interesting to me that this is something that he talks about and how, you know, he talks about in the book about how they're, the people who have sort of that muscular ability are destroyed because they wouldn't be happy in this life. And now with like kids with ADHD, and I just thought it was an interesting parallel that I don't think he could have foreseen. It was just very prescient. Uh, this is the son Kuno talking about the joys of being on land to Vashti. Return to Shrewsbury when it would all be like Peking. This is the quote. Men seldom moved their bodies. All unrest was concentrated in the soul. So, I wonder if sorry, he's Laura. using the, the concept of the soul as I thought about that. Cause that quote that you made, Jennifer, I really liked as well. But I thought then I thought, wait a minute, maybe he's not really talking about the soul in a more spiritual way. Maybe he's talking about the non-body, the non-physical. That's why they talk about these ideas. You have to have ideas. Maybe that quote you're touching on, um, Nathan, as well, that concept of how the ideas are more valuable. If you don't have ideas, you're worthless. 
Yeah, I think we could identify it as spirituality or rather maybe consciousness, not unconsciousness. This isn't a matrix thing, which is like satisfying your feelings and laying on top a conscious layer. You know, mm-hmm. this is just like you enjoy being on Netflix all day and eating takeout. Could, can I make a suggestion? Um, yeah. So I think that when he, they're referring to ideas, it's a callback to the idea to like Hume's I. Uh, concept of an idea, right? You know, something that's sort of one step removed from sensory experience. And that seems to be what they, in this society, what they're going for in their lectures and in their scholarship and all that kind of stuff. Something that's, you know, removed from actual experience uh, and is just kind of like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And it just, it reminded me a lot of Hume's idea of, of what an idea is as yeah, opposed to agreed. experience. Yeah, that's really important. I'll just say, because there's one sketch of that I was making of this, which is like spiritual, phenomenological, or like consciousness, but it is more richer than that because she doesn't like the phenomenological sunbeams coming through the lamp, you know, the, the shade outside. She doesn't like the shape of clouds. She, there's no ideas there. So, I, I, yeah, that's a, that's a good distinction. What I, yeah, what I thought was interesting about that was, I mean, and this may be a big reach, but there's a part where they say, you know, something like we had conquered Leviathan. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the text where they say, you know, life is nasty, brutish, and short. Is that the one? Hobbes, Leviathan? That's right. Um, yeah. And I, and I thought about how, you know, the idea is that they've moved themselves away from nature such that nature is just we are unaffected by it or they are unaffected by it. It's, it's no longer part of what, um, uh, you know, determines the way they see the world, the way they experience the world. They are completely separate from it. And in that way, they've conquered what was the ruler for so long and they've idealized or sort of made great the concept of intellect or even rationalism because they say that, you know, your firsthand experience is terrible, really. You don't want that. And, and you're better off when you have the second hand or the third hand and all of that. And I thought how interesting that was because you have that idea that's clearly running throughout this book. But then you also have the fact that this machine that they have created as a result of their intellect has become something that they no longer can control or really have full understanding of, and therefore it becomes their their end, right? So I thought that was a kind of interesting juxtaposition in the story. Well, there's this dichotomy between like materiality and this ideational plane. And like when, what is it, Kuno has this like, you know, re- this uh, rebirth and he has to figure out what the meaning of near and far is. And it has this material aspect of it, just has to walk to and fro just to work his muscles in order to go on this, this journey it eventually goes on to. But as far as the, um, the idea and... To me, I, I agree with what you said, Daniel. And to me, it was an example of how I just thought, like, in the particular, uh, Forrester just got it wrong. Where I think it's an incredibly prescient book, but I think what he saw uh, as a as a um, fact of this technology was that it would get into some eventually lead us to some essential aspect of like communication, which he took as like ideas. But I think the way I experience modern day communication and how technology influences that, it's not that things have gotten further removed and that we talk about concepts of concepts. It's very much material and it's very much um, appearance in the sense that 
instead of being in this hive comb place where we have white skin and gray hair and are like disgustingly ugly and don't like like don't like judging by appearance it is completely appearance right in in the way we interact on instagram twitter facebook it very much matters what everything looks like (laughs) instead of like if it's a good concept for instance it's interesting in this novel it's as if people are kind of becoming more less bodily um uh they they don't seem to be having kind of sexual drives and this kind of stuff whereas that's not the internet right yeah and it's it's the it's the total opposite in the sense like now you're you you have to be you have to be ripped even if you're 50 years old you have to be having enjoyable sex all the time you have to you, there's all these pressures that are bodily pressures about living a good life that exist due to the nature of i think communication the internet and appearance actually what what it reminds me in this book i it, it almost seems like a sort of asceticism right um that they're almost like these little monks or something in a in a in a monastery and they're all carrying on with, you know, their monthly things of copying the books and all this kind of stuff. Um, whereas, you know, the Internet isn't like a monk-like activity. I, I just want to jump in and maybe disagree or just try and get at the highlight of what you're saying is he got it wrong stuck in my head because there certainly are differences between you know, his projection into the future. And now that we're in the future, what we have and what's going on. But it seems that the future that he was writing about was more perfect in its application of the mechanism. And so in that, we might yet see a turn away from the bodily and more towards projection. I mean, arguably, on the other side, you could see Instagram as a sort of capturing the one day you look good and posting it forever. We're actually not seeing the negative space that is always there in the way that the negative space could grow to become a gray, wrinkly haired person in a cube. But maybe they have such artistry they can present virtually, you know, via the purple screen, you know, as a beautiful unicorn uh, warlord or something. Yeah, you know, um, something that I'm thinking about now is how... you know, there's a there's a question about why people seem to be having sex less and, you know, why the crime rate is consistently going down and all these kind of stuff. And, you know, one theory is that people are occupied by video games. They're occupied by the Internet. They're occupied, you know, with regards to sex, they're probably occupied with online pornography and all these kind of things. So it's true that perhaps... You know, there's a lot of beastly passions being channeled on the internet, but uh, in doing that, you're basically disconnecting from actual stuff that you're doing in the real world. And and over time, I imagine the I don't know, it would have an abstracting influence on uh, sort of what your actual passions are going to be. So I guess just to like one more, just like to round up the point, like I want to throw this to Cesare actually, because, you know, maybe I guess I would say maybe he just we haven't got to his version of the future yet rather than it didn't happen. What, Cesare's version or Forster's? So, yeah, so our future that we're in hasn't gotten to Forster's level yet, perhaps. is something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, But then also to Dan's point about the body, maybe we could talk about Kuno in a minute, just underline that. Because his exercise and physicality is the counterpoint to this. I'm going to ask one question before we go on. There was a, and I'm trying to find where I highlighted, um, there was 
a mention on in the first chapter where it's you were talking about sex and how there was less sex and it said this passage sitting up in the bed she took it reverently in her hands she glanced around the glowing room as if someone might be watching her then half ashamed half joyful she murmured oh machine and raised the volume to her lips thrice she kissed it thrice inclined her head thrice she felt delirium of acquiescence so i wondered that felt wow. very sexual as I read that to me, but maybe that's just me. No, yeah, I missed that. Maybe that's, that's totally you, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like, okay, so that felt like, you know, there's a bit of sensual desire within her. and But it's with the machine. It's with the machine. But it reminded, I mean, obviously you guys have probably heard of her, which is a long time ago. Right. Um, you know, but that kind of, the idea that that doesn't go away within the human experience, even as much as it's uh, selected against, I guess. Well, even if it, if it wasn't the machine today, wouldn't it be a Playboy magazine or, or a yeah, picture? Yeah, it would be silly to hide a piece of paper under your bed in a, you know, if that was the fiction of someone in the Middle Ages. Why would you have silly? But it's important because it conveys to you the sexual, like it's a media, right? Like in the, in the sense of the word that like, it's bringing you content that is actually physiologically, you know, phenomenally something. It, you know, there's boobies, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And like you didn't have them before the screen turned on or the piece of paper was there. So, yeah, I think that's a really important thing that this is like the, you know, the font. Um, um, wait, and of course you worship it. And anyway, yeah. I, mean, I just want to do a quote, a quote here from the secondary source kind of touches on this idea, which is it's from the Journal of Ecocentric Thought. The machine stops satirizers hypermediated contact and in its place valorizes contact made with the fleshly body, so much so that it fantasizes the removal of all technological mediations between that body and the real. This move carries strong eco-critical implications, eco-critical, eco-criticism, sorry, in its suggestion that all authentic connection, whether between people themselves or between people and the earth, must be corporeal. The narrator's apology on behalf of beautiful naked man and his nostalgia for the robust technology-free body are, however, both problematic. Forster appears to conflate nakedness and fleshly connection with unmediated contact or full presence, a view that raises many potential criticisms and questions. If the body proves to be but one kind of mediating interface itself, then on what grounds should the mode of fleshly connection be privileged over interactions mediated by motors, buttons, and video screens? I, I think that's a silly objection. It like, seriously, yeah, because, because you're not having a mediation through the screens except through the body in the first place. Well, I mean, yeah. stands media. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. <laughs> no, but sure, sure, sure. But yeah, the, 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 these are the, the, these are good things, uh, Laura. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, sure, Dan. No, no, I agree. I agree. I, and I think. Oh, sorry. Go on. I was just going to say. I, I think one of the things I was disappointed uh, within this w with the story is that it seems that Forrester, though, doesn't have. Uh, he doesn't give us a solution out of this, and the best he gives us is this, you know, unmediate uh, contact, unmediated through technology. But it's uh, it, it's unsatisfying. I just wanted to. I, I want to uh, do a quick quote from the book, which kind of I think glances upon this and what I was talking about. It's page four. The imponderable bloom, declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse, was rightly yeah. ignored by the machine, just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the uh, manufacturers of artificial, artificial fruit. fruit. Yeah. 
so it, it seems to me like he's still talking about this. There is some essence of, of discourse is what he believes. It was just, they got the wrong essence through the machine. <laughs> well, and, yeah, and I think, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just think that shows up later as Kuno experiences his physicality again. And he realizes and he understands and he says, man is the measure, which is such an interesting thing because it just calls in the idea of perspectivism or where the experience that we have in life is a result of our sensory experience. And that is what determines how we see the world. And to try and divorce oneself from the physicality is to ignore what it is to be human. And I think that I felt like as I read it, and I, again, I, I did not actually have time to read any secondary literature on this, so I could be missing it completely. But as I read it, I really felt like this is a sort of a cautionary tale of how what happens as we get further and further away from an authentic experience. And I think Ian Forrester's idea is that an authentic experience is one that's close to nature and one that is um, where we put our technology down and we sit in experience. So that phrase that appears, I think it's something that Kuno says that man is the measure. Is that? Forget where it yes, is. man is the measure right. is, is uh, Kuno. And he's saying that after he has done the running, I believe. Right. It's an interesting thing that, uh, that's, you know, that's an old saying, supposedly, from Protagoras, the, sof- the sophist. And it was... Yeah, yeah. man is the measure of all things, is the sort right. of idea right. that we have our perspective. And that is what the world is, because we, we are the ones observing it. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, Plato was basically... Plato's basic idea about that thing was that it was relativism. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that you can't help but devolve into relativism when you when you talk about that. But then what what is there? I mean, I, I think that's right. that's that problem with every philosophy is that at some point it collapses. Not everyone, but you know, many of them yeah, collapse well, to relativism. And also, there's something special t- if we. I, I just feel like there's an antidote that gets down to that relativism, or like whenever you know we have all these ideas about the universe. It's also interesting to remember that we are also a thing that is having an idea about the universe, and it's not the real thing. I know that maybe that seems obvious, but it's also, it's not just relative. It's also that it's relevant. It it matters to us. And that's something that without which it's insane to have a discussion. You know, if you get so far removed from the conscious experience, then what is even, what are you even talking about? It doesn't, it ceases to matter in a real way. You know, that's, that's why that, that thing is silly about the, the mediated contact, because having a screen is not the same thing as having eyes. I mean, abstractly, yeah, they're on a spectrum, but they jump orders of qualitative magnitude. I mean, whenever one is, so I, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to get too far away. There's, there's two quotes that I think maybe linked in here. Would something good enough had long since been accepted by our race? I feel like that is a kind of, maybe that has to do with the ideas, kind of churn and backward looking and also where you get that uh, abstraction. And then also the body. Uh, I don't have a quote here, but he just kisses his mother at the end. That's that body contact. You know, the body had been fetishized or isolated. And uh, that was broken at the end. Had he ever kissed her? No, because it was. That's not. That's not. Um, not civilized. It's unmechanical. Right. <laughs> yeah, touching um, was not done. Right. Right. It wasn't done. That's my her. favorite line. I love the example of when she is taking the airship, and a fellow passenger has the book and, right. and drop, drops the book, and they just kind of like stand around and look at it. They don't pick it up, and then she she's doing something, and I think she must have. I forget what it was, but she was on the ship, and she 
started to fall or something happened and the attendant touched her, which was is such a human reaction and such a kind reaction. And she was like, you forget yourself. You know, she was so turned off by this sort of rough, savage behavior. Sorry, I should have let you yeah. fall. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The woman was confused and apologized for not having let her fall. People never touched one another. The custom had become obsolete owing to the machine. And I don't think that machine necessarily has to be a literal word in this um, in this story, in the sense that it's not a mechanical computer type thing. I think the machine could be more of a metaphor of what's happening with society. And so you, you do have that situation where we're so politically correct now that People are afraid to reach out. There, People are afraid to be a good Samaritan because they're afraid of what's going to happen. And then it becomes taboo and how these things evolve over time. It's, I just thought it was interesting. It was an interesting thing to put in here and then to read it in you know, the year 2018, over 100 years later, how we've become that in so many ways. Yeah, I think machine could be any sort of created institution or yeah. thing that gets a life of its own after it is created by humans and then changes our response because of it. For instance, you know, you could re- you could replace the machine with capitalism, you could replace it with religion, you could replace it with with all manner of things. And as soon as these things are created, people see it as having a power unto itself. Yeah, there's an emergent quality to anything that's, you know, any kind of technology, whether it be language as a technology or any of those things that you listed and how there's a sense in this story, which is, okay, so what happens with technology, any kind of technology, is that we are often not equipped to be able to manage it ethically and it becomes runaway. It run away, it, you know, it has this runaway aspect and then it, we lose control of it, like the H-bomb, like everything, you know. I was just going to mention this before I forget uh, what, you met, what you mentioned earlier, Jennifer, about the uh, quality of having a body and us experiencing through our senses. Uh, and I think you mentioned, Nathan, as being a thing that has ideas. This reminded me of like a criticism of the transhumanism movement where there's this like great belief of eventually we're going to be uploaded into the cloud and uh, live our lives that way. And oh. I think that the story really tries to uh, like uh, root humanness as including some bodily aspect. And as if you take that away, there there might be something, there might be something that we could rightly describe as experience, but it won't be the experience that people pine along for when they want to live longer, for instance. Yeah, or to Jennifer, your point about kissing the iPad, I mean, there's something that would I'm trying to save this last line, but I feel like I've just got to like burn it as it's it's becoming <laughs> useful. Um, it's just a damn good line. Uh, Cesar, you had the other good one, the imponderable bloom, which mm-hmm. maybe we should talk about, too, because that was a part of the good enough thing. And maybe they're, you know, it's like the Gattaca uh, uh, science fiction where, you know, we've created perfection, but there's still a chance that the thing we discount is actually at equivalently good. We just can't quantify it. It's like the minority report. Um, you know, uh, we can largely say that you were going to commit suicide, but we can't say if you would have done it at that moment. And a lot of people don't do it. And that's an issue. If you just lock everybody up, start medicating them, you would miss out on that ineffable thing that the technology is not capable of grappling with. And so it abstracts that different layer that it's capable of, you know, uh, quantifying. Anyway, that quote was, um, on atavism, the machine can have no mercy. 
And I just dig it because that gets down to the core, essential, unmediated self, that primal unconscious, then later conscious, then, you know, what we are still, you know, we have our bodies and our senses. And the machine is working against it almost like it's trying to captivate or modulate or, you know, please. And like, so its task is to hack this thing. And and like, what does that yield? I mean, at some point, we should get to talk about the third act and how this whole thing breaks down and the machine stopping. Uh, because I think it's fascinating how, you know, it's the apocalypse thing. It, you know, it's zombies. Zombies, I think, is the belief or a, a way of conceptualizing society breaking down. Just what if everybody didn't participate and became primal eaters and yeah. just and couldn't organize and reason and that's and if we look around we're like oh man if we didn't society it would be chaos we couldn't walk outside you know and enjoy things and similarly if you want to talk to people and then the only way that you have to communicate is gone and your room starts to smell like a fart <laughs> no one's repairing it like and there's no recourse right because there's just one thing this is the fear of a monopoly also yeah, um exactly. or 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 just a, a a stupid god or something you know where there's an absolute authoritarian power a crazy king and it's like kafka you know uh, but one thing um i'm kind of reminded of here is uh, you know i just know it that uh forrester was gay and you know, they, there is an element here where I kind of suspect that maybe this is that's something that he has in the back of his mind, right? That, okay, at the time, you know, if you were going to be gay, you basically had to say, fuck the law, fuck morality, all that kind of stuff, right? And you actually had to kind of go out and, you know, be uh, animalistic. And I can't help but think that sort of experience is... Uh, you know, somehow being alluded to here, or at least it's it's the sort of thing that he has in mind here, right? Oh, totally. I, well, I mean, I didn't know that, but like that just makes it like his argument. I feel like even more stronger because he was a person, you know, who's able to express bold body and spirit. You know, it's like Fight Club almost that appeal to the body and like connecting with. I mean, it's stupid, but the the underlying appeal is there's something to being flesh and blood. And, the, you know, in, in death is okay if you get something out of life that's meaningful. But sorry, I was just trying to tie it into the third part here where, you know, you've got the young man who's bloodied and she's like, are we going to make it? And he's like, no, we're not going to make it, but it's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this is living. This is like what it's about. You, this is the veil removed, you know, yeah. be here now. And um, I think there's something about that, that repression again. I mean, you tell me that this guy's like, you know, gay in a time where it's hard to be gay. Yeah, like that's uh, that tells me that he's looking at authoritarianism in face. Right. This is this whole story is kind of a brief for that sort of argument that you basically ha sometimes have to not care about culture. That that's kind of the basic argument of the of the story. At some point, something good enough began to pass. Don't we feel that way about like modern, Absolutely. mediated, homogenous, Every, stupid culture? There's a there's a woman, Sherry Turkle, she writes about technology a lot. And when I listened to her talk once, she was talking about her daughter had gone to something 
she had, she had some sort of like animal that was an electron. It wasn't an animal. It was like a turtle and it did a certain number of things. Like, you know, it, it would walk and it would do, it would respond in the way like a robot responds. And she, there, there a question came up of whether or not it was living or not living. And her daughter responded that this little machine was alive enough. And I thought that was, that really came to mind for me because that's where we are. You know, we're, when you talk about something being living or not living, that really calls into question, what does it mean to be alive? And so much of our technology is alive enough. I mean, we have robots now. We have, my kids are getting these little coding Cosmo things for Christmas. And, you know, it's just wh- whether or not you generate ideas or, I mean, we all have Alexas in our houses and all these things. And, and now the idea of what's living and not living is getting murky in, in a lot of ways. And what it means to be alive, the way he talks about it here it is called out, you know, it's, it's the, it's the nuance in the facial expression. It's the connection that we feel when we're in the room with someone sharing space with them. Is, is that the imponderable lost. bloom? It's in that section. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the, would that, I'm, I'm asking, you know, that is, that is what, you know, I, there's like in, in phenomenology or any of those kinds of where you study being is that thing that is being that is more than just the senses, more just a sum of rods and cones and sound waves and, you know, nerve endings. It's what it is to be human, that honorable bloom. Yeah, I think that's my thought. Uh, that, that makes sense. I don't personally believe this or I, I don't necessarily believe it, but uh, somewhere uh, someone would say, hey, well, how can you really escape culture, though? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, actually. I don't think you can escape culture, but I also don't think you can escape what it is to be a human being, however that shows up. Culture doesn't have to be the media. That's like saying the culture is the uh, all roads lead to Rome or something, you know, like the streets or like a viaduct. I mean, I guess that's I mean, it's in it because it's all dealing with material, right? Like that gets down to it. This version of it has brought all material to a apex, like or a center point, a nexus. It's a reducto ad absurdum, right? Capital T, uh, the thing. And it's kind of hard to imagine what, I mean, this is, it has a culture that kind of, I feel like is brought along with, like it's, they're connected and intertwined. But I mean, it's a, it's possible to imagine, and this is where we're getting away from the text, like I we had to like kind of stick with their argument, I suppose, because it's possible to imagine other ways for things to be. But this is one such of those ways. Like it seems possible to have like a multivarial, you know, uh, uh, AI that's not a monolith. You don't see that very often. You don't see like a council of, uh, you know, representatives of the AIs or something. Maybe that's common in fiction or whatever. But like it's just different from this is uh, the thing. And in this one. If it controls everything, like you kind of, it doesn't make sense to appreciate anything else. Cause like, what else is there? Bitter air? I mean, yeah, if you're Kuno, uh, because it's still like something, it still taps into that thing. Well, the idea for me when I read this story was how did they get here? And I thought, well, the assumption before this story for me was okay, there's been sort of some nuclear holocaust of some kind. And this machine, I had the idea that, and I'm just going way out there. I had the idea that this was this situation was created because Earth was no longer habitable and they had to come up with a way to perpetuate the species and that perhaps they created a situation where the machine might self-destruct in this way, you know. So it's unlikely this is just a theory of my own, but I'm just thinking 
people have become so accustomed to living in these pods. And the reality is if you don't, like you can't exist in a vacuum, like this cannot continue. I mean, we don't know how it all is made. We don't know how the fake fruit is made and we don't know how it all works. But the idea of, you know, being able to be completely isolated from any kind of material from the outside world and be able to take that material and harness it into something that we can use that, that seems unlikely, right? You know, just conservation of energy is seems like that wouldn't be a a feasible thing to happen. So that I guess the point being that they've gotten away from this idea of real actual life on earth. And this is created by man. Is there that council of what was it called? The various councils, I mean, there's right? Committees and heads. It's committees, very governmental, right. bureaucratic. Right. They're supposed to run them, essentially repair and run the machine. And if someone has a complaint about some sort of thing not working, they're supposed to bring it to the committee. The committee, right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but no one person understood the monster as a whole, right? And that was kind of the interesting part because you know, there's nobody questioning this. There's nobody saying, "Where does this little arm come from?" Remind, I don't know if you guys have, I'm sure everybody's read this in in our motorcycle maintenance where it's like, you get to the point where you just don't know how anything works and you're unable to do anything about it. You're so far in, and I, I think we are at, at times so far in. Oh, isn't that true about religion? It's interesting. There's so many degrees of separation that we, like, why do we believe this? Well, one of the interesting things here is that you could read this in contrast to, say, 1984, where there's clearly people who are at the center controlling things. And whereas this dystopian, kind of somewhat totalitarian sci-fi, no one is actually is, is in control. Somehow or other, this all apparently happened without any sort of conspiracy. People just kind of moved towards this. There's one point where Forster actually makes it clear that the committee's don't actually control what people, you know, how how this uh, kind of culture and the machine develops. Um, there's a quote. Towards the end, he talks about two great developments. The first was the abolition of respirators, which was this thing that people were supposed to use when they went up on the surface because supposedly you couldn't breathe the air on the surface and you needed to use a respirator. But apparently later on, you know, the machine decides to get rid of respirators, so I guess no one could go on the surface. And the second great development was the reestablishment of religion, which of course is kind of a religion of the uh, machine. But you know, Ben Forrester says, to attribute these two great developments to the Central Committee to take a very narrow view of civilization, the Central Committee announced the developments, it is true, but they were no more the cause of them than were the kings of the imperialistic period the cause of war. Rather, did they yield to some invincible pressure which came no one knew whither and which, ungratified, was succeeded by some new pressure equally invincible to such a state of affairs it is convenient to give the name of progress progress yeah so with regard to the respirator i feel like i want to discuss this whole idea of going to the surface because it seemed to me very confusing because i was unsure of why there were blood you know there was blood coming out of his of kuno's orifices as he ascended to the surface. And then it seemed as though he was able to be okay without the respirator on the surface. And then, you know, he got sucked, you know, pulled back down by the machine. But is Earth habitable or not? I think I think what happened was just that they kind of breathe a rarefied air down there. And if you try to go up that it's just a bit harder 
Yeah, I think it's a process of adjustment, but it may take a while. So if you think about this becoming, you know, like, why would they ever go down below our surface in the first place? And they're, okay, so there was some sort of terrible, you know, environmental disaster on Earth, and they have to do this. At this point, it seems as though Earth has become habitable again. And maybe the people who originally designed this didn't foresee people, they didn't understand the way people evolve as the technology. I mean, I can't help but think of, you know, the, the medium is the message kind of thing. You know, they don't know how this is going to evolve and how the people will evolve with it and how they will change and how, oh, they are going to now become dependent on living in this way. But the idea was originally, let's just wait until Earth becomes habitable again and assume that everyone will go back to the surface. But it's the opposite. It's now Earth has that become was, this that, horrible that place. Was what was assumed? They were going to go back up? Well, no, I'm, I'm saying, what if that's the case? Oh, what if oh, the oh, case oh. is that, you know, why would they go below our surface to begin with? That's the question, right? Um, why would they begin living in this way? Nobody, I don't think we would ever choose to do that unless some environmental factor weighed in and we had to, like Earth became someplace we couldn't live. Uh, that actually kind of makes sense to me. It's it's not maybe spelled out in the story, but it's a reasonable presupposition. I thought I mentioned that like when he gets to the surface, like some sort of the, the air machine is pumping out air, which is collecting in like this Dell, and he's worried about a gust of wind blowing all out and him dying. That was very cool. Yeah. I, I thought that's the explanation, for, at least for how he's breathing on the earth. It oh, might, is that the explanation? Because then they it have might to be see- in his head. Like, it, you, you might be right, though. Like, he might be imagining, like, he needs this air. At first, that's the way he gets out, but then he kind of tests the waters and can stay out for longer and kind of just gets to do things. And he sees people, right? He sees escapees or homeless or what? I don't know what you want to call it, but... Homeless, that's the word they use for, you know, the homelessness is just not being in the system. And, I mean, you know, is that did I read that correctly? Like, he sees people or is that... Well, this is... that was I was confused about that and uh, that, that aspect and... There was another uh, a point in the book when he's pulled back by what he describes as like white worms, which I assume yes. were just like the machine's tentacles. <laughs> yes. He at one point mentions that like he wishes it, uh, he had been like her, who where the like the worms went through her neck and killed her, and yeah. it never really describes who that person is. Those were the bones. No, that was of, my question. Uh, escapees. I, I think maybe y'all have seen oh. Snowpiercer. Uh, Snowpiercer, I think, is very interesting. Like a good analog. Like they have a uh, whatever. Like you know, all of the all of society is compressed to a train. And it's surviving in an apocalypse and the train is an allegory for a civilization because there's improbable trains like, you know, for nightclub train and education train and, you know, butcher train and stuff like that. Uh, But they, through the window, can see along their rotation around the earth bodies outside that have tried to escape and are frozen in the waste. These bodies that were out there in this story were left to prove that it was deadly by the bones on the ground that, you know, trying to live out there was hard. And, you know, I, I wanted to bring up Snowpiercer again because I think it's an interesting thing. It, it, it shows you a state of things and this is the status quo. But then at the end, it reveals that there are all of this function at the expense of child slavery. And one of the main characters decides that this isn't worth it and damn the train if it costs this and, you know, throws it off the track. And they might be able to live in the wilderness, you know, might, uh, because they saw a bear maybe one time. I just think those are interesting metaphysics about like how to handle a system. I, I, I really like it because it's like, yeah, we have this giant system. And interestingly, in that movie, the, uh, the, the white American 
and Captain America, Western hero, is enticed into taking the Matrix. Another good one, right? Like someone who, you know, has never used their muscles before, but can once they start, you know, and wake up and see the outside and get a sense of their body and a sense of individual freedom and stuff like that. What movie is this? Uh, Snowpiercer. Okay. It's really good. It's, it's very it's good. good. It's, really um, good it's by a South Korean director. So while it might be framed as a American, uh, like, under siege movie, <laughs> you know, with Steven Seagal, it's a very good, like, intellectual action movie. But anyhow, I, I bring it up because, you know, like The Matrix, like other kinds of future gone awry and the systems that are dominant, the question is, what do you do? And anyway, just to tie it back around, how does Kuno know that everything is stopping? You know, or that the machine is going to stop or he's seen it? I mean, that's interesting to me. But anyhow. Well, what, that's actually something I'm wondering about. And I'm wondering if it's kind of a flaw in the story in the sense that there's a, um, it, you know, it's typically thought that, uh, what's the phrase, a deus ex machina is ending is a bad idea. Because <laughs> it just, it's a, it's a kind of ending where the resolution comes about through something that seems to be totally disconnected from what the characters are doing. And just a god comes out and throws a lightning bolt and kills the bad guy or something like that. And that's kind of the ending here, right? Or of a Titanic. Respirators are abolished, right? The thing is, is the story writing, you can use accident to get someone into a problem or out of a problem, but not both. And this satisfies that just it, it creates the problem at the end. It's the, you know, in the penal colony, whenever the torture device goes off the rails and does a far worse execution than was ever intended. Because it's like the group collectively is bringing about, effectively through their kind of sloth, they're bringing about the end of the machine. Forrester, there's a quote here where I where I was reading before, but humanity and its mm -hmm. desire for comfort had overreached yes. itself. It had exploited the riches of nature too far, quietly, complacently. It was sinking into decadence, and progress had come to mean the progress of the machine. And, you know, apparently people just forgot how to run this goddamn thing. I, I just wanted to say um, about 70% of the way through the book, and it's talking about this part where he's having the conversation and with his mom about, you know, life outside. Do you think that you could live in the outer air? Yes. Have you ever seen the round, round the vomitories, the bones of those were extruded in after the Great Rebellion? Yes. They were left at where they perished for our edification. A few crawled away, but they perished too. Who can doubt it? And so with the homeless of our own day, the surface of the earth supports life no longer. Indeed, burns, yada, yada. And, you know, she asked, then why this obstinacy? He says, because I have seen them. Seen what? Because I have seen her in the twilight. Because she came to my help when I called. Because she too was entangled by the worms. And luckier than I was killed by one of them piercing her throat. He was mad. Bashi departed. I, I don't know. I feel like I think I thought there was something there that he he says, you know, those bones and everything are there for our edification so that we stay where we were meant to stay so that we stay with this idea that it's not safe to go out. I mean, he also hears ghosts of the people who were miners in the before rail station, right? Like, so he's connected. And at the end, he says something like, can't you, like, they're waiting for us, like the history of man. Uh, so I think that he's got a kind of uh, worldview that sees, yeah, I, so I maybe, don't think it's supernatural, but I think that he's connecting with uh, with people along history. But, but at the end of the day, he does come away with the idea that you can live. I don't think they're dying 
um, I don't know. I, I, I just feel very confused and conflicted about that. You know, that I thought the idea was that they could live outside on Earth's surface. And the idea of this, even the way he writes it, the machine stops. It's not it will stop. It's just the machine stops. Like at some point that that's going to stop and people will move on to the Earth's surface. It seems as though really that one cannot live outside and that he did not see any of those things. Is that is that what you guys are coming away with? Yeah, please. What was the reason why you thought that maybe people can't really live outside? That seems to be the big point at the end, right? That That they can, correct? I think that's the idea. I think this might be crucial because, like, he says the machine stops. How does he know that? His experience is not in the eye of the narrative, like, authority of, you know, because, like, the narrative voice, that's something to bring up. Like, at one point says something like, you know, this is, as far as my recollection goes, it's about to close, something like that. Like, it's it breaks out and it's like, here's the author telling you this is kind of like a dream they're having. But like we don't get to see Kuno's experience. We're we're focused through Vashti and we understand that Kuno goes through more than he tells us because he doesn't tell parts of his story. And parts of the story that he does tell he's got wrong, like they weren't worms, they were tentacles from the machine. And the woman that uh he saw was really dead, but he saw her life and she was killed. I'm not sure about other specific things in the desert, but at the same time, like how he knows the machine stops and all that, I think he is going further than what we get to see in the narrative. That makes seeing sense. stuff. Yeah, I, that's what I gathered. Like, I felt like once he discovered that he could go out, I, I felt like he went out. Yeah, and he figured figured out the problem, the long term problems with the machine. Maybe what was there like a two year gap between his yeah. uh, his going out, telling his mother about it, and that this part three of the story where everything falls apart. I don't know. I just got during the years that followed. I don't know. I didn't ever see the actual number of years, but yeah, it's years. Can we just comment on the style just a little bit? Um, it's very, there are times when it reminded me of the King James Bible, but almost <laughs> like a weird AI recreated version of the James King James Bible style. Uh, it's at times reminded me of sort of academic discourse, but like a AI uh, recreation of academic discourse. And just figuring out what the hell was going on was incredibly difficult. It was almost like, uh, but I think that was kind of the point that people are so caught up in their own ideas that it's almost like they don't even know how to describe things properly. Like if you've ever used Google Translate, um, and you try to read the translation, it's just this weird, bizarre thing that like you get that something was being said here, but but it's kind of weirdly garbled. And that's almost what the style is here, I think. It was a little bit difficult, and I wasn't sure if it was a technical choice to make things a little bit more obscure or if I just was having trouble understanding. But I did feel as though it was difficult. I don't, I don't, I'm not 100% sure I know what you mean about the King James um, reference. In terms of, was it actual syntax or what What was it? There's a lot of hithers and thithers and stuff like that. It's not just the cadence of it. Uh, oh, I think that's, you know what, that reads to me very 1909. Anything in this um, time period, it turned into the turn of the century or the early beginning of the century, it, it, it all has this um Yeah, yeah perhaps, perhaps. In any event, maybe that's a subjective. Did anybody, can I just ask one quick question? Did anybody have the, any, the repeating of a line or do I just have like a bad copy, a bad Kindle copy? My where copy it just, is also terrible. Misspellings. It's hard to, and it's hard no to tell if it was letters. artfulness or not. Like there was superstitious phrase. Do you mean that you could like 
in the outer area. Yes. Have you ever seen around the vomitories, the bones of those who were extruded after the Great Rebellion? Yes. Have you ever seen around the vomitories, the bones of those who were extruded? And I thought, okay, is that a typo or was there some uh-huh. reason that? I had that too. I thought it was more for emphasis. I, I, I there was another another instant point also. I feel like maybe just before that, a little earlier, and um, I wish I could recall it because that would make a pattern. But um, maybe. But uh, so I think that that might be like authentic dialogue because like whenever it read as I didn't hear you and and, a, and an insistent mother repeating everything deliberately again. So it read naturalistically to me, but. Oh. Um, can I bring up something? This is toward the end where the first thing that happens is the respirators are abolished. And then the second great development was the reestablishment of religion. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to get a sense of what you all thought about that involvement, a journey toward the machine stopping. Well, I really was trying to, I, I thought, gosh, this feels like metaphor to me. This feels like what does the respirator represent? And I just kept trying to think about it. What comes to mind for me is that respirator, if you abolish a respirator, to me that says, let's squash curiosity. Let's squash any sort of notion of looking outside of anything and trying to explore. It felt like in the you know previous episode, Lovecraft, you know, don't go looking right. underneath that rock. Yeah, don't look there. Right. So that that's what I thought as I read it. I don't know if that's what the intent was. And the idea of religion coming back, I don't really think it needs to coming be. Coming back, to me, the machine is religion. Religion occurred before the machine, and it was the reestablishment of, of that idea, right? And I find it fascinating, this thing that just tugged at me throughout the, the whole thing, which was, first of all, man created religion, and man created the machine, and man created Facebook. There's this quote, which is, the clumsy system of public gatherings had been long since abandoned. Neither Vashti nor, nor her audience stirred from their rooms. Everyone stayed in their rooms, but they gathered on Facebook. You know, hasn't Facebook even been uh, characterized as a public gathering, like replacing the great, you know, center of town where everyone would gather and buy fruit from the vendors and then talk about somebody said public square. Yeah, somebody said it really, really well, and they said, you know, television or now Facebook has become the new fire. You know, the new campfire. To me, the common thing was that man created religion, man created the machine, man created Facebook, man created the respirator, man has created all of these things that defeats our lives. What do you mean by defeats our lives? Causes these great struggles for us to overcome. Like I'm just finding, I'm seeing here and just looking at these things throughout Forster's story that the machine is there, but we created the machine in order to save us, but it is destroying us like Facebook and Instagram, all of this stuff. You know what I'm saying? We're creating these things to save us and promote us and move us forward, but it's destroying us. I want to tie these things together, and I'm very afraid that I'll ramble a little too long. The idea of religion banning the respirator, to me, ties in with what we've already discussed about the good enough and the like emergent properties of institutions after they're created. And I agree with you, Jennifer, that like it's in a way a darkening, and it further encloses these people's experiences of what is possible. 
And I think other elements of how they live their lives were of this good enough were just like certain types of beds that could only be one size. The hexagonal rooms were all the same and the plates were the same. And the religious aspect comes in this property where not only do you start worshipping the technology, but you take the good enough, what you initially thought was just an approximation of something that's good as the best possible world, the best possible thing. And that, I think, excited the people's backlash when they started talking in the these uh, religious tones, or I don't know if religious tones was the right way, when they started to want to expel the people responsible for the machine's downfall, for instance, or expel the people or kill the people who would dare visit the Earth because this great fear that there is some experience outside of the machine. And what they do instead is they take their experience to be the best possible thing. Right. That's a desire that the people in the machine actually have. And in a sense, I think the machine is just carrying out their desires to make sure that there's not a atavistic experience. Just to go back to what I had mentioned in the beginning, the idea that everyone is separated makes me think of Facebook in this way, because you don't have any connection with anybody in the outside world. There is no physical connection. So you're you're not just going to run into somebody that's a completely different kind of person than you are. So in that same way, I don't know if this is what he meant, but it certainly seems like, wow, that's just, that's how we have evolved. Certainly now in this time frame, we don't hang out with people who don't vote like us. You know, we don't talk to people. We unfriend people on Facebook if they don't vote along the same lines we did. Or So we are in these ideological silos and these people in this culture, this society that we're reading about, they do the same thing. She doesn't have very much in common with Kuno. So she just doesn't talk to him anymore. She has her own friends and her own lectures and her own little group. And that's all she makes contact with. So I think what the book is trying to suggest about that sort of phenomenon is that sort of arises maybe out of a desire for comfort. Absolutely. That quote that you said, which was so good. That was my last line. Oh, so you fine. stole it. No, no, it's good. It's good. But it's the humanity and its desire for comfort had overreached itself. It had exploited the riches of nature's too far. Quietly and complacently, it was sinking into decadence and progress had come to mean the progress of the machine. It's not good for us. It's good for the machine. It's good for Facebook that we do this. You know, it's such a human thing to want. I mean, isn't the whole, one of the big points of human life to kind of be comfortable. <laughs> like, yeah. It is, sounds yeah. like a self-defeating quest or something, you know? What, I mean, is, what is the Aldous Huxley book? I, it's not Fahrenheit 451. It's the... Uh, Brave yeah. New World. Brave New World. So if you've read that, you know, that is how they live. They have not buttons, but knobs or whatever that they turn and they feel these things. And it's just like right. everything is about comfort and ease. And there's just nothing that is uncomfortable. And that entire book is about that. I think this is somewhat similar in that way. It's like we have to have a level of um, discomfort. We have to experience the discomfort too. Gosh, that's such a theme. Lots of people say that. I'm not sure. I haven't read um, A Brave New World. Does it work out for everybody? Or are they permanently happy? Permanently no. stoned. They're permanently stoned. And, you know, the ending is ambivalent. But I think, I think the idea is that no, it is not a real, it's not an authentic experience. And that as much as you, that's what I liked about that book. And I don't want to go into that book. But I feel like the one thing that was missing in this book was dissent. You know, I feel like there's so that everybody seems to have gone along with this and that good enough seems to be okay. I what think about Kuno. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. You know, Kuno, I think, represents the opposite, right? But I, th I think that in life, my experience is that there is more depression, there is more suicide, which we do see in this book as well. There is more what is the purpose of it all. The more we get away from direct experience, 
the more meaningless it all feels. And that it's only when we put down our phones and we go for a run or do yoga or, you know, have a conversation with somebody that might disagree with you. That's when you feel alive and that's what makes you want to live. So I think, I don't know if that's what he's trying to get at with Kuno, because in the end, he certainly says that, right? He certainly says that this is living, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And Vashti is seized with the terrors of direct experience. Maybe we're just a group of people who obviously we listen to a philosophy podcast. We read these kinds of books. Maybe we all do agree that, you know, that is living. And I, I would say that we all do based on having talked to you guys. But maybe the majority of the population really is okay with this numbed out experience of, you know, assimilation. I don't know. I mean, one of the things that struck me when the machine was starting to break down was that the part where people really began to notice the problem was when their beds didn't come out and so they couldn't sleep. At the end of human history. And the quote is, for mankind was not yet sufficiently adaptable to do without sleeping. My way of thinking about this is that whether we like it or not, our urine bodies, it's not like that critic that Laura was saying is correct, where, you know, maybe we could just be mediated through the screens rather than bodies. No, we're stuck with our bodies. I'm sorry, but unless we're uncomfortable the body itself breaks down. I mean, something I was kind of wondering about is how are these people just not bowls of mush having had so little exercise? Maybe they wander around the rooms a bit. He says a lump of flesh in the very first, you know, page, Mm. I think. Something is a lump of flesh in sort of the shape. That's right. There's a quote at the end. I I just want to get to it, even though I'm sure it's going to be someone's end quote. He's talking about how technology is nice, culture is nice, et cetera, et cetera. And then Forrester says, and heavenly it had been so long, i.e. culture, technology, et cetera. And heavenly it had been so long as man could shed it, it will live by the essence that is his soul and the essence equally divine that is his body. The sin against the body it was for that they wept in chief. The centuries wrong against the muscles and the nerves, those five portals by which we alone apprehend, glossing it over with talk of evolution until the until the body was white, cap, the home of ideas of as colorless, last sloshy stirrings of a spirit that had grasped the stars. You know, you gotta go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, it's just another thread I wanted to pull up. But since we were talking about the body, it seems to me the body is crucial. And it makes me think of the individual. And so the individual is isolated in Vashti. And we've got the Kuno is like liberated in his body. And it also seems to be something about like, if you think about the human body and the measure of a man, then you also get something like human rights, like kind of flow from that idea. Like, isn't that connected that like an individual body a person gets a certain respect yeah you know as a consequence like i feel like that is something that is so whenever you get to something like the machine and it breaks down there's not real like because the state is the machine there's not a department to call whenever the department's on fire and there's there's a real issue that comes to butt up against like well now everybody's person is connected in this way and they are bodily connected to the state some die from the shock of hearing silence from the first time right and so i i feel like there's 
something going on here. I mean, like there's there's a material like coin, you know, where there's like a flip side to it, where mm-hmm. on on one side you've got people are taken care of by their state and everything's fine, but it's kind of monolithic as long as long as you play in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. And then there's another which recognizes something that existed before a state, the human self and nature, and yet it runs into a material problem of not being able to go alongside the social state because it made a bunch of trash or nukes or whatever. It can't morally live alongside the other man that chose the social state is my, I guess, sketch. Wait, what was that again? Sorry. There's a social state of man and then there's a moral state of man, like, you know, the guy that runs to the woods or whatever. Imagine a, uh, you know, a not a, a not like crazy lone gunner or whatever, but someone who maybe just wants to like undiscovered tribes, let's say, or people who just want to live on their own means in a cabin somewhere and not get you know mail and uh, email and stuff like that. You know, there's something different going on, though both people are the substrate of man. One is choosing the bodily, you know, I can use my muscle to cut. And another is saying, I want to be at the ease buttons. And uh, yeah. and the downside of one, I mean, sure, you've got your nasty brutish and short, but if there was a solar flare or whatever, the machine stops. It's so crude. It's so it's such a terrible, dumb breakdown. There's no other recourse. And then you realize how pathetic your religion structure is. So I just feel like this is this is kind of how I'm visualizing the the, you know, the the breakdown. And um, I mean, ultimately ends in catastrophe, right? Like no one's I mean, the the two worlds collide. Everything blows up. I mean, I, I think about this all the time. Like, what if something happened and I don't even know how to really start a fire? perfectly dry situation and lighter and things like, you know, how, how, no matter, even if we aren't completely immersed in the technological world, even somebody who tries to live off the grid, you know, can't really. And in some respects there, we, we can't, um, I don't think we know how to survive at this point in the, in the way that, you know, we had to in, in times past. Also, I just I just want to cap on this. I mean, in the real world right now, the people who are being most affected by the ravages of technology that give you Amazon delivery and flights across the country and all that stuff are people who have none of that and maybe live in a worldview that is pre-technological, you know, and they're thinking about fishing and, you know, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but like a reduced I mean, the poorest places on Earth are getting hit the worst by uh, climate change. That is a result of man. I mean, I don't need to sketch this out further. I don't feel like. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's a long sentence, but I think it's something we're grappling with. Where it's like a a small bunch of us are screwing a large mass of us and the planet and long term everything, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't have a way of talking about the homeless. You know, I'm trying to tie that back into the story where like being homeless is simply without the state. So it's like you choose the state or you walk the wasteland. I mean, very Judge Dredd or whatever. No, it's a very interesting point because in this story, homeless equals death, right? And it's what you're saying is that we're creating an environment where homelessness or an inability to conform and become part of a society equals death. I I think. Yeah, go on. No, no, carry on. I think that, I mean, look, can't get rid of culture. I think Forrester isn't seriously suggesting that we're going to give up technology and, and culture completely or anything like that. 
But I think the critical idea he's trying to suggest is that you kind of you have to retain an ability to step outside culture. And that it has to be a sort of reality check, I guess you could say, um, that you always <laughs> have to, right? I mean, I, I, think, I think that's the critical thing. And I think that connects with, you know, the, the basic kind of foundations of liberalism and that if you're going to be able to, if it's so critical for the continued survival of the system to allow people to kind of step outside of culture and and sort of think for themselves and experience for themselves, like you have to have rights, basically, that allow people to go ahead and do that. You can't have social rules and legal rules, and et cetera, that constrain freedom yeah. too much. So I think what's interesting, what you just said about what you just said is, you know, like contrasting with something like 1984, where you get the idea that there is a big brother, there's somebody who's controlling all this and sort of driving the way that this is evolving. This story kind of seems as though there was no divine or central or, you know, master plan, but that people, like it is our inherent nature to isolate ourselves and to want to stay, you know, this kind of cordoned off from the difficulties of, like, like you said, we it's just our human nature to want to be comfortable and that inherent drive within a person, a human is, could be our downfall. I think that's an interesting thing that you pointed out um, about the way this, the story happens. I don't know. I mean, do you think, do you, did you get the idea that there was a, a master plan or did you sort of get like, this is something that just happened over time? I mean, that's kind of, that's not mentioned. It's not really, but I think it's important to think about what the difference would be. Yeah. And why this happened, right? Yeah. The why this happened, it's like, for me, it was just this assumption. I mean, we moved beyond, like, I feel like our thinking has gotten into this new realm. Maybe, I'm not sure, like, how to categorize it as, like, a modern thought or whatever. But there's not, like, big bad guys, but there's, like, group fuck-ups, you know, where, you know, there's this one version of World War II where everybody was just doing their job. You know, and like yeah. the a lot of the horror came from diligence and being a cog and not my job. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing this one thing and everybody just did their part. A collective action problem, maybe. Yeah. 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 And, and also like the global financial crisis, like there was no boardroom, right? That used to be the picture that it was so willing and conscious, but it was a collective greed that tapped us out, you know, and we also like this makes me think of democracy something i've a point that has been given to me is that democracy isn't a process for or it's not meant to solve a problem perfectly it's just a process about having people like people can rise to the occasion of figuring something out maybe but that's not democracy's game it's not concerned with trying to make sure all the questions are solved best. Mm -hmm. And so the process is actually just what it is. It can actually fail to succeed on some thing that's inconceivable to the system. You know, yeah. And I have to imagine that the machine, you know, broke a gasket somewhere, like all these BP oil engineer things where it's like feats of technology, unlike anything done before. And then, you know, loose screw pops and then the gulf is flooded, you know. Right. And well, it's and like, who's to blame on that scale? Like, where's the villain? Well, that's the interesting thing, right? I mean, I think that is the big interesting point about this story for me is in questioning, you know, is there the villain? Is there not the villain? I remember somebody talking about things that are in our food. I don't know, some kind of, you know, out banning some kind of food additive or something. And 
one of the top executives of one of these seven major food um, distributors across the world said, there is no big bad guy at the top saying, let's be terrible. There is only corporation. And individually, all the people that work for these places are good people. They all want the same thing. But the problem is because we have the corporation in the way that it exists, we anthropomorphize it. But really, that's it's we are at the mercy of our government in the way that the corporation for, say, food isn't going to just do something out of the goodness of their heart. Like if high fructose corn syrup is bad, they aren't just going to ban it. Everybody has to ban it. Otherwise, it's not going to happen because they're not going to go first because it's not, you know, it's got to be a collective kind of thing. Well, the word that I think would catch all a lot of the stuff is capitalism. Exactly. There's the problem of capitalism. Yeah, right. Exacerbates issues and like a religion. People have a belief and they think they're acting in the goodness of general production or something. And what happens when we do anthropomorphize something like capitalism? We we remove responsibility from ourselves. You know, it's right. like there's someone to blame, but there is nobody to blame. We are the blame. You know, we are the problem. And, and that's kind of what I think happened with the machine is that the machine became a god. The machine became the thing that was responsible, but it wasn't. It was the people. The people decided how this went and they didn't take care and realize that how this was all, it, you know, how it all worked. They didn't take responsibility for it. They allowed it to become a god and then it became something out there to blame. Then it's, it seems hard to like pick on people in our own time for, I mean, even though I'm mad at people for not seeing the writing on the wall of Facebook three years ago, you know, and people did, right? That's the damn thing about it is that people have been yelling about global warming for 50 years now and it's slowly taken on the edge that it has you know and it's might not be able to make the cut what does okay what does the book have to say about this collective action problem like what i i'm not sure i'm not well let's look at the third part that downfall is crucial because everything breaks down right like i mean people die off immediately like there's you know like people locking in their rooms presumably you know it's just a massive you know uh yeah, but at the same time, at the same time, religion was reestablished. And then they have their apocalypse, right? So well, it's like they I, have their... I'm just putting it out there. I'm just saying, you know, what if what if the point is that religion is a way to absolve ourselves of responsibility? Duh. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that's the point. So there is no, is no but there is the reestablishment of religion. That is the problem. Yeah, when you right. squash... I don't necessarily feel this way about religion. I mean, I think I have a lot of feelings about religion. But I'm just saying, I do think religion has this problem in the sense that, you know, once we squelch curiosity, we don't make ourselves curious and open. And once we absolve ourselves of responsibility for how the world goes, because there is some big thing out there in some way, then we run into problems. I would attach, I would apply that criticism to, and I think the book is trying to apply that criticism to culture in general, right? About this, uh, Daniel, because I, 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 like you've, you've, hit, you've said this a couple of times and like I'm trying to get an understanding of what you mean because I feel like culture is different from the media and the media itself creates a new kind of paradigm, which is the central issue actually. But like you're talking about culture writ large and I can't really point to any other alternative cultures within the book, so to speak. I mean, yeah. I mean that all the kind of, you know, traditional commonplace sort of uh, practices and ideas that we fit ourselves in, into uh, in order to work collectively with other people. And I think in the strong stance, this is the this is the strong argument, I feel like. 
yeah. culture. Well, I think that the the machine is a picture of that, right? It's I know that we're talking a lot of, about a lot about him being prescient, but I think he's just trying to talk to refer to more specific things, that more general aspect of human life. I and think that's fair. There's a phrase for this. It's not parable, but it's like a, a, a abstraction so it can deal with the things writ large. People don't like the word allegory for some reason, but I I think it's a good I think we might as well call it Yeah, okay, fable. Excellent. Fable. Because I think the allegory is like, because if you find something that can be an allegory, which is a metaphor that keeps working, basically, yeah. you know, and can do like really heavy lifting, that's a beautiful thing. But I think, yeah, like a fable, because these things yeah. are like turned into... It's just a more concrete way to describe and explain and illustrate a very abstract element of human nature. Right. right. And so it's not just religion or Facebook or, or anything like that. Like, for instance, I keep on going back to homosexuality here. Here, but that's just culture, right? That's the law and ideas in people's heads that get perpetuated. It's all sorts of stuff like that. And that's the real threat here, right? It's the whole pin and caboodle of culture, I think. And, you know, it's I've always found it interesting that culture, the word culture apparently derives from cult, kind of is religion in a sense. It's group thing. It feels like you're trying to say something about how when we are so entrenched in our culture, for example, the Me Too movement that's happening right now, we're experiencing that where we start to notice things about how our culture was and how, you know, we, we go back and we watch certain movies over again or certain TV series over again. And we say, oh, my gosh, like, how did we how did we behave in such a way? Because the culture has shifted. But it was the air we breathed at that time. So we didn't even realize it. And lack of awareness because we are so entrenched in the culture is the problem. The inverse of that might be like the siloed uh, culture that we find ourselves in. Like you're saying, we don't know people who, I mean, uh, we're not, or we're not selectively friends with MAGA folk, or may per perhaps, you know. Um. I thought the Me Too movement is actually a pretty good example of this because... It connects with this discourse around, you know, there's a lot, of, it's, it's kind of become a buzz for the body, right? Um, but I, I think actually could maybe do a decent version of that by going to what Foster is talking about here that, you know, the reason that people began to see that, uh, you know, sexual harassment is a problem is because they actually paid attention to their own bodily experiences that they didn't like this sort of thing where they would get harassed. And I'm sure they didn't really recognize that as even a problem initially, uh, you know, it's only by kind of paying attention to their own body that they came to recognize that, yeah, this is an actual problem, regardless of what society is saying. The, the crucial thing there is that there is a, but then there's a, rel a relative point, because then there were people who were not having that experience and could recognize it as better and well to not have that experience. And then to be able to communicate that to people, you know, afresh before they have had that experience or not. And for them also, because you have a lot of issues now talking to people in the Me Too movement and they'll be like, you know what? You talk to me about PTSD. What about our soldiers? Or like, I had a man touch me and it's like their bar for like what is reality and acceptable has already not to say like been broken or tainted or like to throw that stuff on there because there's no time machine, right? And like they've got to work from where they are. So there's no judgment about that. But there is already a kind of, you're not going to be able to get their willpower because it's already been spent on dealing with trauma uh, to recognize something like a new generation who can and can appreciate, you know, an alternative between two things, whereas the first only has the status quo and is 
you know, like it's just the way things are. Mentality. That the, young, that's the, that the younger are necessarily more connected to the body because they're less acculturated. Maybe. No, 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 no. It, it actually like it's that's the cool thing about generation is that this is the atavistic thread that runs through generations is that the next generation, it's basically the same thing genetically. I mean, now there's going to be, uh, you know, that that sounds bad to geneticists who are going to talk about, you know, uh, genomic change through culture and stuff like that. Sure, sure, sure. But like we're not yeah. wildly different on a, you know, if you do the Dawkins line each generation up on a road and then drive through them and they're like the same for 30 minutes. You know, right. It's like we're basically the same thing. So we're going to be able to tap into the same atavistic grammar. It's not like we're jumping into reptilian, yeah, you know, make right. up a thing there. This is toward the end, as everything is falling apart. Then she broke down, for with the cessation of activity came unexpected terror, silence. She had never mm. known silence, and the coming of it nearly killed her. It did kill many thousands of people outright. Ever since her birth, she had been surrounded by the steady hum. It was, the ear, it was to the ear what artificial air was to the lungs. An agonizing pain shot across her head, and scarcely knowing what she did, she stumbled forward and pressed the unfamiliar button, the one that opened the door of her cell. I was, I mean, there are a couple of lines in here that were just shocking to me because I have a problem with silence myself. And I wonder where that came from. I, and I don't know if it's connected to the machine, but that, that really, that really took me. That's a good one. That reminded me of, you know, all man's problems and his inability to sit quietly alone in a room. Right, right. Now, Absolutely. Silence is, silence is deafening. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. It's amazing. Podcast personality I like is John Roderick, and he talks about the barrier to the existential dread that cities and their lights provide from seeing stars in their fullness, mm -hmm. that that right. used to be a kind of reference point for every person to ponder. Oh, and, and also tell them where they are yeah, in the universe. Orientation. And remind yeah. them how small they are. Yeah. What's yours, Daniel? It's the part where Kuno is explaining what he learned from going to the surface and it's the man is the measure thing but i just want to draw that out a bit man is the measure that was my first lesson man's feet are the measure for distance his hands are the measure for ownership his body is the measure for all that is lovable and desirable and strong then i went further it was then that i called to you for the first time and you would not come he's talking about his mom but that's that's it all of mine were were used i, I want to just Say one last one that I thought was interesting because it just made me think a lot of things. Let your ideas be secondhand and if possible, tenth hand, and then they will be far removed from that disturbing element, direct observation. However, um, Forrester meant it. I felt like it was just described so well how we're afraid of our own interaction with the world. So these are just, uh, I think, emblematic of our age. Uh, this is where it's prescient, right? This is a prescient quote. She knew several thousand people. In certain directions, human intercourse had advanced enormously. Uh, like, come on. I mean, uh, no, people. Right. Um, this is the other thing. Whenever you turn off your phone and then uh, turn it back on, uh, this is uh, how I think modern people feel. Uh, Vashanti's next move was to turn off the isolation switch and all the accumulation of the last three minutes burst upon her. The room was filled with the noise of bells, speaking tubes. Uh, what was the new food like? Could she recommend it? Has she had any new ideas lately? Might one tell her new ideas? Uh, yeah. Want to make a date? Oh, I, I, hilarious, right? Um, oh, perfect. Another one. So, Laura, that we were sketching out certain things. They turned away from respirators that got away from the bodily function. Right. And they 
turned away from other thing, one other thing also. Anyway, this is a third thing on top of that, which is, I think, uh, epochal shift. It said, dawn, midday, twilight, the zodiacal path touched neither man's lives, not their hearts, and science retreated into the ground to concentrate herself upon problems that she was certain of solving. That revolves around that they had, that man had at once tried to outrace the sun. So in their ships, the idea was that they could go fast and stay in sunlight or stay in darkness at will. And even now with their ships, they couldn't do it. And it was a certain kind of, fuck, we can't do that. So now let's do the next best thing, which is to isolate ourselves in darkness and control the light. Uh, rather than um, trying to outpace it, which I just thought was a very uh, interesting, you know, yeah. uh, technological thing. It reminded me yeah. of just the idea that we don't want to acknowledge what we can't control. We just kind of like moved away from anything that's... Totally buried our heads in the ground. Literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also this one that I think is interesting. This just hints to an idea that I think that we kind of have layers of like latent conscious understanding in our culture that play out. Important developments took place in the machine. On the surface, they were revolutionary. But in either case, men's minds had been prepared beforehand and they did but express tendencies that were latent already. It just kind of is like a signaling about like how time changes and how it shifts to me. And then, uh, oh, yeah, this is the one that expresses the whole thing. To keep pace with the sun or even to outstrip it had been the aim of civilization preceding this. Racing airplanes, uh, enormous speed around the globe, westward in vain. The globe went eastward quicker still. Uh, horrible accidents occurred. And the committee of the machine at the time rising into prominence declared the pursuit illegal, unmechanical, and punishable homelessness. Homelessness. 